Welcome to the Grove Church Podcast and thegrovekc.com. Our mission as a church is to encourage people to discover true treasure in Jesus Christ. We hope you find today's teaching helpful and encouraging. Thanks for joining us. Well, it is not Father's Day, but to all the awesome dads out there, we do salute you. Um, Perhaps you remember some of those videos from about six years ago when a lot of these became real popular. Um, I'm kicking off our time today with that montage. In part, you know, there's a lot of serious things going on. We'll talk about that a little bit later in uh, at the end, towards the end of the service. But uh, even in the midst of of very serious things going on, laughter is good medicine. And so uh, it's fun, and I thought you'd enjoy watching it. But uh, I also played that clip because in many of those cases, while we can laugh and, and even be in awe right now, uh, those incidents were brushes with disaster, right? I mean, that, this was, there was a lot of really close calls. And, and while those watching at the time were, were gasping or maybe even cringing, often the kids involved they had no idea just how close they had come to disaster. And in many ways, that description is apt for an incident that we're going to look at today as we continue our signs series. We, we got started last week looking at this, this series, going through the Gospel of John, but specifically looking at these, these key signs that John tells us are intended to do something in us. I, I want you to hear again, John, at the end of uh, the Gospel, he says this in chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. He says, I, I, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so again, today what we're doing is looking at the first of seven miracles. These are miracles that serve as signs along a journey. Each one had a message, and they're leading us in a specific direction. They're all leading us to this big idea, kind of a summary of what we saw last week. This is the big idea. His signs are intended to help us believe that Jesus is uniquely qualified to give us life. That's what the signs that Jesus did were intended to do. They they weren't just party tricks. We'll see that. We're going to go to a party today. But, but they're not just party tricks. They're intended to help us believe that he is uniquely qualified to give us life. He says this in, in the midst of his ministry, John 10.10. He's making a contrast. He says, you know, a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. He's describing his very ministry. This thing that John is telling us, he he wants you to have life. Jesus came to give us a certain kind of life as well. And so as we make our way through the signs in John's gospel, what we're doing is we're getting a glimpse, really, of the nature of this life with him, the life that we find in Jesus' name, a life that's intended to make all the difference in our everyday living. It's not just a life for someday, it's a life for Today And so what we're going to do today is, is look at what John tells us is the first sign that Jesus performed. And honestly, if you start reading the Gospel of John, it comes about rather suddenly, kind of like a, an unexpected exit. And, and it could be easy to write off as simply an opening act of sorts, you know, just kind of this warm-up 
for more important demonstrations of Jesus' character and power that are to come later. We, we, might, we might dismiss it that way. You know, he just needed to get a little, little start, a little jump start, kind of get things rolling in his ministry. And so here's just a nice little you know, trick that he does early on. But as we'll see, that would be a gross underestimation of what Jesus is doing here at the beginning of his ministry. I believe this sign really serves as an introduction. It, it serves to to really frame for us what the abundant life that Jesus came to give is all about. And so let's jump in. We're going to be in John chapter 2, and we're told this in uh, the very first verse. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place. So here we are. We're at a party, and the wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. Okay, so right here, just right off the bat, notice what's going on. We're at a wedding. Weddings in those days were probably, and the, the likelihood here is this was a week-long festivity. And this was the culmination of, of many months of a betrothal uh, where a man and a woman are, are betrothed to one another to be married. The man is going. He's preparing a place to bring this woman into his family. And then they're going to celebrate the, the beginning of this marriage with a big old party, and it's going to last all week long, and all kinds of people will be invited. So here we are in Cana of Galilee. This is a spot that's familiar to Jesus, and, and, and is, I mean, this is essentially hometown. And so the likelihood is that this is a close family friend, maybe even a relative. And what we, we would gather, okay, is that Mary is probably helping with the catering in some way. Okay, she probably has something to do with helping get this party going. And it's, it's important to note just right off the bat, Jesus is not there on the clock, okay? This isn't just some, you know, professional service that he's doing, you know, I'll go and I'm the, the new rabbi and so I've got to go and just sort of meet people and greet people and be known and seen in the community. That's not what's going on here. He's just there to celebrate. He, he's there to enjoy people and affirm the beauty and goodness of the marriage commitment. He, he's just there to celebrate. He's having a good time. But then a problem develops. Verse 3 says, When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. So what's the problem? Well, the wine has run out. This, this, the wine should have been flowing for, for days. And we don't know exactly what happened. Maybe somebody miscalculated. Maybe more people showed up than, than they thought they had invited. You know, or, or maybe they're just a, a rather lush bunch. We don't know exactly what happened here. We don't. But we know there's a problem. The wine has run out. And you go, well, okay, well, I mean, great. So go get something. You know, maybe somebody's got some juice boxes back at the house. I mean, what, what do, find something. No big deal, right? But, but what's going on here is the potential for disaster. They are on the brink of, of potentially great shame in this community. We don't, we don't live quite in the same kind of shame culture that Jesus lived in and that many of our, our brothers and sisters, just people around the globe, they live in cultures that are slightly different. And when you, when you do something, when there are expectations socially and those expectations aren't met, it's not just sort of this mild embarrassment of, oh, bummer, I didn't, I didn't you know, accomplish everything that I should have accomplished. No, there's a deeper sense of shame of, of not providing for people. And so here you have this young couple, and especially the groom, he's responsible for this party. His family is responsible for this party. And if things go south like it looks like they're going, it's a potential source of great shame 
for this family and for this groom and for the start of this marriage. And so we're on the brink of disaster. But, but the question becomes then, well, why bring that to Jesus? There is no indication that Jesus had ever done, ever done anything supernatural up to this point. There's no reason to believe that he had. And so Mary is not coming because she's like, well, you know, I remember all that stuff you did when your toys broke, you know, back when you were like nine and, and you had that problem and you, you fixed it all. You know, that's not what's going on here. So why does she bring this to him? Well, again, probably not expecting something miraculous, but somehow she knows or expects he can help. And this probably just stems from the fact that Joseph, Jesus' dad, had probably died years before. Jesus, the firstborn son, was the man of the house, and he'd been taking care of things. And if nothing else, he was a man who had grown in wisdom and stature before God and men, and he was resourceful. And Mary had learned to lean on him in terms of just helping out. Again, this is maybe a potential family disaster, you know, somehow related to their family as well. So Mary just says, Jesus, I need you to help. I need you to, to jump in here. Look at how he responds. Verse 4, he says, what does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Now, I said it a certain way, okay? <laughs> I said those words a certain way, okay? Now, we'll talk. He, he mentions, I'm going to start with the easy thing here. We're going to kick it down the curve, but it's, it's a really important thing that he says that we, we, don't, we might have missed. He, he says, my hour has not yet come. We'll, take, we'll talk more about what he's getting at there later. Well, let's just deal with the elephant in the room here, right? Woman? I mean, you try saying that to your mom, right? That's not going over well. And if there's any of you here who do say that to your mom, you need to check yourself, okay? That's not okay. It sounds harsh. But here's the thing. This is not a term of disrespect but of care, actually. At the very least, it's a neutral term in this particular situation. But I want you to know something. Jesus, the scriptures record one other time that Jesus addresses Mary this way, and he calls her woman, just in the same way. You know what that occasion is? It's when he's on the cross, and he's preparing to die, and he wants to make sure his mom is going to be taken care of. And so he turns to a young man, who just happens to be the author of this gospel, and he says, woman, your son. This is a term of care. Now, at the same time, there is a weightiness here, and we need to address what he, what he says to her, aside from just woman. And I think the weightiness here has something to do with the change in relationship that must take place between he and his mother at this point in Jesus' life and ministry. He asked her, what has this concern of yours to do with me? Right? Well, what, is it, what does that have to do with you and me? And this is a kind of rebuke. Again, it's a gentle rebuke. We need to not read it in our normal, our modern way of hearing that. Right? What does that have to do with me, woman? That's not what's happening. But there is a rebuke here. And the line that's being drawn is between his previous responsibilities as the man of the house and and this man that's supposed to take care specifically of Mary and, and their family, and a new mission. And so this is a line meant to mark a new relationship between he and his mom. And in this new relationship, the father's agenda will have to drive him, not hers. 
And I want you to see her response. It's a marvel. Verse 5, she hears this, right? She doesn't react and go, did you just call me a woman? That's not what happens. He just, she simply says, do whatever he tells you. He turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. She responds with this humble confidence. She's not turned off. She's not put off by his rebuke. In fact, she accepts and she leans into it. She knows. I mean, she, she's been being prepared for this a bit, but she has a sense of, oh yeah, his agenda should drive things. Just as Jesus has said to his father, your will be done, she in this moment is beginning to learn to say to her Lord, your will be done. It's this shift in relationship that's coming and is needing to take place. And it's important to know right here that there is power in obedience to Jesus. He's beginning to show us the importance of obedience. And it will take trust to do what's happening because what he tells them here will not be easy to do. Which brings us to the first insight into the abundant life that Jesus came to bring. And what I want to do here is, as we go through, just focus on three key people in, or, or three groups of people uh, in this account. But the first thing I want us to see is that when he transformed water into wine, Jesus demonstrated that life with, me, with him means a transformed perspective on our past. And when you trust Jesus, part of this new life means you have a different outlook on your past. Now let's think about Mary for a second. You're between 12 and 14 years old. An angel appears to you says, hey, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. And it's not going to happen by any way that you would have learned at any point. And then she does. God supernaturally makes her to conceive and she then gives birth to the Son of God. And she, she begins to raise this little boy. And you think about this, you're, you're a young teenager. At that point, if you're looking at, okay, hey, so what's my life going to involve? What are sort of going to be the highlights, the major accomplishments? It's, it's reasonable to think maybe I've peaked. Right? Maybe I've hit the highlight because, I mean, what are you going to put on, that, on your resume that's better than gave birth to God, right? Like, there's nothing. We can't sit around at a party and you go, well, you know, I... I've accomplished this and I've accomplished that. You know, I'm a brain surgeon. I've walked on the moon. Even the walk on the moon thing. Like, no, I gave birth to God, right? Drop the mic. Okay, you win. There's nothing higher there. And so you, you could wonder for Mary, like, what is her, what has this life then been for? Right? What, I mean, what she had to raise, okay, we can add to it. Okay, not only did she give birth to the Son of God, now she's responsible to raise the Son of God. Okay, that's, that's also a pretty big deal, right? You guys are all, you know, those of you that are parents, just raising a kid, just period, tough, right? Really difficult. Okay, but I'm not responsible to raise God. Okay, so difficult here. But we, we can look there and go, okay, that was it. That's the pinnacle. That's, that's what this was all about. But there's this shift taking place. There's a transformation taking place. And it's a, a, a transformation where preparation I mean, because you could ask, well, Mary, you've been, you've been being prepared for this. And, and God attempted to help her, I mean, prepare her. He told her, look, this is going to be really good, but there's also going to, a sword is going to pierce your soul. Like, there's going to be difficulties here. 
And, and if we're not careful, all we look at is our past in terms of, I'm just being prepared for the next thing. I'm just, I'm just getting prepared for whatever's going to come later. When you trust Jesus, what happens is not so much that that stops being the case. There's still preparation going on. But there's this transformation and elevation from just preparation to purpose. Right? Mary's starting to see, wait, wait, this wasn't just about getting this young boy ready for, for his purpose, for his mission. This is about me being transformed from just the mother of this child into a disciple of the Lord. And so Mary's going through this, this transformation. I mean, it's beginning here, and it's a, a significant moment in this transformation. And what we see then is God will use our past, again, not just as preparation, for the future, but to point us to our very purpose on this planet. I hope you will see that. When you trust Jesus, it's not that what happened before doesn't matter, but God wants to take that and say, no, 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 this is, I will use that in a way even greater than just mere preparation for the next thing. I will use it to show you what I have in mind for you for your entire life and really for all eternity. So the first thing we see is that our perspective on our past, is, it begins to be transformed when we trust Jesus. Second thing, notice where the story goes from here. It says, now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus says, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Okay, so they filled them to the brim. I'm going to stop there for a second. Now, just note, these are jars for purification. This is significant. These were jars that were used for, for cleansing, for ritual cleansing. They were meant to mark being cleaned from sin. Jesus says, well, I'm going to use them in a, a different way. Now, these were big jars, 20 to 30 gallons each, which means we're talking here about a, a grand total of 120 to 180 gallons of water. We'll split the difference. Let's say there's 150 gallons of water, and these jars need to be filled. If they're not filled, he says, fill them all the way. Fill them to the brim. Right? Fill the jars with water. Now I want you to notice, these are large jars. They're not running down to the well with the jars and then trying to carry them back. That won't work. So what's happening is wherever the water source is, these servants are going, and one bucket at a time, or whatever the, the, the unit they have, one bucket at a time, they're coming, and they're filling 150 gallons of water. Right? How long does it take to fill your bathtub? 30 gallons is about, I don't know, 30, 50 gallons of bathtub, I don't know. But it's going to take a while. And I draw that out because, remember, what's the problem? Is it, oh, hey, we ran out of water? Is it? Did we run out of water? Are we ever, you know, it's a really hot day and everybody's just parched and we need to make sure, you know, nobody has heat stroke? No, that's not the problem. Water's not the problem, wine is. So imagine you're the servant, back and forth, bringing the bucket, filling up this thing. Yeah, he said water. Did you hear him say water? Yeah, he said water. Okay. Guess, yeah, but still, yeah, he said fill it all. You think all the way? Yeah, I think he means all the way up. Lots of time to ask, why am I doing this? And then notice what happens. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head, wetter, head, head waiter. And they did. Again, remember, 
The problem is wine. These guys have just sat there, spent you know, an hour plus filling these jars with water. And he says, now take it to the head waiter. And it's not their party, the servants, but still, they've got to deal with, what is this guy going to say? We're the ones giving it to him. This is it's kind of a crazy step, but they obey. And they witness something incredible. Verse 9, it says, when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the best wine first, the fine wine first. Then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. I want you to remember, there is potential massive shame on the line. But as Terry Virgo, author Terry Virgo says, Jesus didn't just rescue the party, he transformed the party. And it's subtle. Most people don't even know how close they've come to disaster. They don't even know what he's done, most of them. But what he's just done to and through the groom is deliver a message. And the message is this. Jesus is demonstrating that life with him means transforming not just our perspective on the past, but our place in the present. There's a transformed place in the present. Listen, wine had run out at weddings before, probably. It, it, would, it would happen again. But Jesus is making a point that some would see that day and billions more would understand later. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That groom had no idea he was taking refuge in Jesus. He's just the grateful bystander of Mary springing into action and Jesus choosing to respond with power. But here's what happens. That man's place, that groom... Again, he's on the precipice of deep shame, and that place gets moved. He gets moved away from the edge, from a place of shame to a place of honor. He's not just rescued from the edge. Oh, hey, well, let me pull you back just so that things aren't so bad. He's moved and elevated to this place of honor. The head waiter says, you've done something. This blows my mind. Not only is this the best wine I've ever tasted, you've done something nobody does. Nobody's this generous. Most people just, they know, and it's not, and nobody even cares. Nobody minds the fact that we just wait till everybody's sort of had enough, and then we give you the, the cheap stuff. You flip this completely upside down on its end. And this young man, again, on the precipice of deep shame, is now elevated to a place of great honor. And this is what God wants to do when we trust him. You say, well, I, mean, I trusted Jesus, and I'm still just plugging away making life happen, dealing with all the stuff that all of us deal with. Yeah, but, but understand that in God's economy, in the grand scheme of what God says is, is real. He says, look, look no, I'm going I'm to take you wherever you've been, whatever disaster you've already dealt with, and I'm going to move you from this place of shame, and I'm going to put you in my family. Elevate you to this place of great, great honor. 
That's what Jesus does. That's what life with Jesus is about, is recognizing that we, we've been brought from a, a place of, of shame and redeemed from that, and, but put in this place of honor as children of the king. Remember we said last week, he is the Messiah, and he is the Son of God, which is to say that he is the Savior, he is the one who redeems, but he is also the one who is royally, he is a royal, he is a king. And he has brought us into his family through faith as we trust him. And so he transforms a perspective on our past, he, he transforms our place in the present, but I want you to see one last thing. Verse 11, it says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So we're told again, this is the first sign. It's in Cana of Galilee, and what's the result? The disciples believe. They believe. And what did they witness? It says that they got a glimpse of his glory. A glimpse of his glory. What is that? What does that mean? I mean, think about it. They were already his disciples. I mean, didn't they have to believe to be his disciples? You go back and you read chapter 1, and you see Jesus calling these disciples and them responding to him and and them thinking, okay, there's something here. We, We should follow this guy. And so they believe something about him. But here we're told that something has shifted, that they've gotten a taste of something. They've gotten a glimpse of something. What is it? Of his glory. And what is that? This is where we go back to verse 4. What has Jesus said? In response to his mom, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus or the narrator uses that word hour, it refers very specifically to one thing. The hour of Jesus' death. So here's Jesus. He's at a wedding. He's told, look, the wine's run out. I need you to help. And on his mind is the cross. And so I think this is part of the reluctance. What Jesus knows is this is not the hour. But Jesus knows that this will start something. If he does this, he does this first sign. What it's going to do is start something that cannot be undone. It's a first step on a path that will end at the cross. And so there's this moment where we're, what we're seeing Jesus do in response to his mom is not waver necessarily on, well, here's who I am and this is what I'm about. But there's this moment of, okay, if I go and do this, you don't even know, Mary, what I'm about to embark on. But, but if I do this, then something far greater than you know is about to happen. It's important for us to recognize Jesus isn't just some robot going, well, I've been told I need to die on the cross, so I will do it. Jesus, fully God, fully human. We see it the night before he's crucified, sweating blood in consternation because he knows what awaits him, and yet he's determined, I will do what my Father wants. Nobody's taken my life. I'm laying it down. And so here at the very beginning of his ministry, is that, that is on his mind. If I get started here, there's no going back. I'm laying my life down. 
That's the glimpse, the beginning glimpse of glory that they start to see. So when Jesus transformed water into wine, he's demonstrating that life with him means a transformed, means transforming our prospects for the future. It's not just our perspective on our past, not just our place even in the present, but our prospects for the future. Now, I want to note something, okay, real quick. When I say prospect, I don't mean a date, okay? I'm not talking about looking for, for somebody to, to get to know or maybe marry. I'm not talking about the Chiefs' fortunes in the NFL draft in a couple months. That's not what we're talking about when we say prospect. What I mean is what we can expect for all of eternity, our prospects for the future. The disciples were disciples, but they had not believed like this. And as you read the gospel accounts, what you'll realize is what they believe now is not all that they will believe. But here they get a glimpse of his glory. They knew he was good on some level. They wouldn't have followed him if they didn't. But now what they see is not just goodness, but glory. They get a glimpse of something far greater than just a good guy, again, rescuing a party. And what we find is that he has come to reveal his glory so that we can share in it. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears. This is our hope, folks. When he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He is worthy. We've sung, we will continue to sing. He is worthy. But he is glorious. And he shares that glory with us. Every other pursuit will run dry, but there's one who is good forever. He meets us in the realities of our lives and promises and proves that those who trust him will receive, filled to the brim, the abundant goodness of his provision. He's good. He takes care of people and the stuff of life. He's not put off because it's a wedding, it's just some normal thing. No, he takes care of his people and the stuff of life. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. And someday, the Bible tells us there will be another wedding feast where Jesus will not be the guest, but he will be the groom. And the church, the collection of those who have trusted him, will be the bride made radiant. At that party, the very best wine will be saved for last. But in the meantime, we get a taste of what's to come. So if you know Jesus, if you're walking with him and you're trying to trust him in the midst of all of just day-to-day life, I want to remind you, Jesus is committed. I think that's part of why this takes place at a wedding. He's not going anywhere. He wants you to know he is committed to his people. But know this too, if we have called on him, he will take charge. He is not content to coexist in your life. He is patient, and he is kind, but he is Lord. He is not our lackey to just be bossed around for our convenience. He is the Lord, and just as he expected with Mary and with those servants, he expects obedience. And and not only that, he, he also, as he works in your life, he's working your life so that you can help others see how he works and get a glimpse of his glory. So I'd ask you, who in your life needs to see how Jesus transforms? 
How can you be surprisingly generous to someone the way Jesus has been to the groom and to you? I mean, if you're here and you're not yet sure about Jesus, you're, you're not sure if he's any more than one option among many, then I'll be frank, we do believe he is the only lasting option that truly satisfies, and we want you to get a glimpse of his glory and believe and have life abundantly. There, we're unashamedly, that's what we care about. That's the message. And hopefully, if you were to, to stick around, maybe continue and, and be a part of just going through the Gospel of John with us, hopefully among us, you'll see a basic integrity. You're not going to see perfection. However clumsily we may look at times, you'll realize we are joyfully serious about pursuing Jesus and the life that he's leading us to. We want you to know that what he does for parties, he does for lives. Every person who has ever lived when in the presence of Jesus will find that they don't have the resources needed and are staring down a potential eternal embarrassment. None of us deserves his kindness, but Jesus stands ready to step in and miraculously not simply rescue us, but also transform us. As he went about his ministry, he was, simply stated, a friend to people. He was with them to celebrate highs and to share the lows. And day by day, day by day, he looked for ways to give grace to lead people into the truth and to share truth that would lead people to grace. He wants to do that for you. I want to encourage you, if, if this is intriguing at all, and uh, just even better treatment of this very uh, account, but that will help maybe talk, give you some time to process through what is the life that Jesus offers. This book, we've got a few of them still out in the, in the uh, connections area, and we've got more coming. Terry Virgo, Life Tastes Better, probably take you less than 30 minutes to read the whole book, but I highly recommend it. Check it out. And then maybe if you're here and you've got a friend that you think might benefit from it, take it. We've got more coming. They'll be here this week. Okay, so take it. Last thing, for you guys that are a little younger, you know, there's a tendency for you students, there's a tendency to think that following Jesus is about missing out on the good stuff. You know, that you're in a time where there's a lot of figuring out what are the boundaries, what should I do, what should I not do, what do my parents say, do I do what my parents say, I'm trying to figure out some of those edges. And again, there's this tendency to think that if I follow Jesus, that just means I've got to sort of put aside all the really good things and just take my medicine and, and somehow maybe I can develop a taste for doing the, the not-so-good stuff. I just want you to know, guys, Jesus isn't keeping his best from you. He's not holding it back. Sometimes the answer to enjoying good things is not yet. That's true, whether you're 15 or 55. But if it's truly good, and if it's essential, the answer will never be never. It's a life of faith for you at 15. It's a life of faith for any of us. Knowing that Jesus' best is better than any of us yet even know. I want to encourage you to form trust in that. Every day, we and the people around us turn to all kinds of approaches to life, whether out of habit or because they seem readily available. And these all, in some way, seem to satisfy for a time, but their joy 
will run out. Jesus' invitation is to taste and see that there is one life that truly satisfies. And it's a life that we even get to help others encounter. May we drink deeply and share the cup of grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the way that you work, the way that you reveal yourself to us, the way in which you show us that you are good, that you are a refuge for those who trust in you. I pray that you would help us to respond in faith to the power that you intend to, that you have shown, and the the power that you intend to work in our lives as we take you at faith and trust you. God, may you be honored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray that you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at thegrovekc.com for more ways to connect with us. And join us again next week for another podcast from The Grove Church. Have a great day. Thank you.